I pelvic thrusted through a window at a house that Liam was house setting. You can't just throw that one out there and not give any more context, right? <laughs> you see, I dispute this. What I was doing was, um, also, please can the opening um, sound bites of this episode just be I pelvic thrusted through a window? But yeah, I mean that's gonna be the title, right? <laughs> <laughs> I claim that I was just leaning back on a wall in a house that I was I was unfamiliar with, and I stepped to the right and found myself going you know backwards into a window. Okay, what I'm happen. told though is I was imitating my roommate's sex life and may have pelvic thrusted viciously backwards into a window. <laughs> I dispute this, but that's that's just the differing stories welcome back to the bit of a tangent podcast my name is john looker and i'm a data scientist who also minored in genetics just to keep things spicy as always i'm joined by my co-host jared the brilliant and ever entertaining pelvic thruster of windows a point that proves shockingly relevant towards the end of this discussion Banter aside, this episode focuses on topics that affect the social interactions we all have on a daily basis. In our discussion, we examine the habitual social patterns that we all inevitably follow in our interactions with colleagues, friends, family, and especially partners. Jared and I consider the differences between these social modes and our narratives of them, and juxtapose this idea with the concept of mental models. Just when things start making sense again, we examine Don Hoffman's theory that our perception of reality is totally fictitious, and how such a misrepresentation could have been evolutionarily selected for. Finally, we discuss ways in which we might break the bounds of our social narratives through psychological hacks like self-characterization and frame-shifting. This episode really runs the gamut from abstract to actionable, so there's definitely something for everyone to enjoy. The discussion certainly affected the way I socialize and changed my perception of what it means to truly connect with another person. As always, links to everything we mention and other fun things can be found in the show notes at podtangent.com. Without further ado, here's the episode of Bit of a Tangent. So, Jared, uh, you have been bouncing around this idea of relationships. Uh, this is all kinds of relationships, uh, romantic, platonic, various different kinds, mentor, mentee type relationships as well. And what kinds of those relationships are desirable? And this idea is something that you've communicated before and we may have, you know, dabbled in at some point in the past. But I think it's probably worth just reiterating what your intuitions are there so we can really dig down into what you mean by that and how that can be applicable in our daily lives. Yeah. So I think what I mean there is that for several reasons, relationships tend to play out in a fairly narrow subset of stereotypical patterns. And... It's, I think, quite obvious if you just think about how much time as human beings we spend talking about the relationships that we wish were going better. This could be with a friend or a partner or whomever. whomever. But clearly, if the the societal recipes for good relationships were um, adequate, 
we would have, we would spend far less time, I think, talking about just how much they frustrate us, right? And what I've been thinking is that part of this frustration, at least, comes from a set of, I would argue, unhelpful or irrelevant beliefs about what a, bela- a relationship is and what constitutes correct behavior. And I think that we end up reasoning very much on the lines of, well, this is what is appropriate or this is what is um, acceptable. And um, we don't dig so much into what might just be useful or what might be... Um, we, we don't open ourselves, I think, to a lot of more vulnerable, maybe higher risk um, strategies, which could lead to more optimum solutions to human relationships. Um, and I think... I think that's roughly where my intuition started to diverge on this or to rather from, yeah. Okay. So yeah, that, that point you mentioned right at the end about vulnerability, I think that's one particularly that a lot of uh, men struggle with less. So I feel as we going into the future and society is becoming more accepting of things like mental illness and of, you know, the difficulties that people face psychologically, but historically men have always had a, a real issue with, making themselves vulnerable uh, for various, you know, evolutionary and uh, societal reasons. Uh, at least that's been my take on it. Uh, and this, this ties into this this idea of sort of playing a role where people are asking themselves what's appropriate in this situation. And it's almost like these various kinds of relationships seem to, like you say, have recipes uh, where they are these repeating patterns uh, that get acted out again and again. It's almost like the sort of, there's this belief that there's about seven different kinds of story that humanity has, right? So an example of this would be like the hero's journey. So if you look at something like uh, Star Wars or something of that uh, nature, you've got like Luke Skywalker and he starts off in you know his starting position and then there's a call to action and then something happens and then there's some change in the character and he becomes a Jedi and then it shows you his sort of ending position as contrasted with his starting position. Um, and in much the same way, there seem to be these kind of recipes uh, or, or repeating patterns in human interactions. And this is something I've noticed as well, uh, even before we uh, have been discussing this sort of idea of, of relationship patterns. Um, I mean, there's, there's, I think there's a book by the name of uh, Games People Play. I haven't read it, but I've, I've definitely heard that thrown around. Um, and, and I... I'm pretty confident that this ties into this notion of media and the world around us and things that we see through literature and in our own experience, sort of setting these patterns for how to behave in different situations based on the power dynamics. And as a result, people sort of just fall into playing a role as opposed to actually acting in the interests of themselves and the other parties, uh, maybe in the purest sense. Uh, how exactly this all ties together and how exactly we can break out of those patterns, and if we even should, I think that is where there's a lot to be discussed. Uh, I, I definitely share a lot of your intuitions in terms of there being patterns and there being a difficulty to making oneself vulnerable. I mean, this is why we we have an issue with... Uh, with small talk, right? And and, and I mm. personally find small talk quite unsatisfying. Um, but it does serve a role. But it it would be completely socially unacceptable to walk up to someone you've just met 
uh, and start diving into really deep personal questions or, you know, deep uh, treaties on their personal ethics. Um, and as a result, I think I think we've developed small talk as a way of kind of uh, converging on common interests and common ground, which makes it much less confrontational in a lot of interactions. But uh, the the side effect of that a lot of the time can be that you don't have any deep interactions because everything just kind of remains at surface level. So I don't know if you have any maybe personal experiences or good uh, sort of examples that we can discuss as almost case studies in this and potentially discuss some ways in which one might want to or try and circumvent these repeating patterns. Yeah. So I think there's several points to talk on there. Um, and we'll try and hit all of them, I think, as we go along here. And I think for me, what I'd like to do is eventually, I think if we, if we can bridge this gap between this notion of roles that we play, like scripts that you, that people tend to habitually act out, right? And I think the habit part is the, one of the key ingredients here. Eventually, what I want to do is to bring that all back into what I feel is a point that's, subtle enough that as much as it's my point i'm struggling to make it to myself and that would be my end goal for this conversation is to have a better understanding of what's rolling around in my head there mm -hmm. so let's start where you um left off with the idea of um roles that people play right so i think it's it's a useful notion to have in your head that and let's actually try and bring in some some sort of cognitive science and psychology here right um, it's something that we've maybe spoken on before, and I think maybe people will know about it, people don't. But generally, whatever is going on, right, um, there is the true fact of whatever is actually happening right now, right, which you know, at the most base level is pure physics, right, and at higher levels is you know your neurology, the interactions of the molecules that compose you. But at some level, right, whatever's going on is a story that you are repeating to yourself, right? A set of thoughts that are being thrown out there by your unconscious brain that tend to characterize this situation. And in fact, I would even say that a lot of the time it's maybe somewhat accurate, you know? But the point is, is that this is, this is not, um, the, the phrase that's always come in useful here to help describe this analogy is that people tend to think of themselves as, the president, right, authoring their experience at any point, whereas it's more like they are the press sec secretary whose job it is to explain the utterings of someone who they do not understand. So what, I, what I'm just trying to get at with this slight tangent is um, <laughs> that at any given moment, some stuff is going on and we are just throwing out stories to justify the set of facts that are um, that are being presented. And the reason that's important to understand at the outset is because once you realize that you are just giving these post hoc justifications, you're sort of free not to indulge in that story anymore, right? So, I mean, let's just let's dive into a, a, almost a, a fictional example, I think. But you know, you're sitting there and you're having a conversation with a friend and you're just finding the conversation to be a bit dull, right? Maybe they're not being interesting. You don't find yourself to be particularly inspiring. You, 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 and, and what you're doing, right? What's going on, right? As, as a matter of fact, all that you could say, if you could describe that system as a, like, factually, is that there's two human beings there and there is a conversation going on, right? 
But those two human beings, their minds, are throwing out a story about it, right? Your brain is saying things like, oh, I'm not stimulating, or I'm not stimulated, or I'm not being interesting, or look how bored they look. But these are very much interpretations, right? They're not the baseline of just the physical reality that's going on there, right? And the reason it's important to acknowledge that that story-generating function then is because you're free to stop indulging your own story, right? You can suddenly step back and and choose in that moment to ignore the fact that it's been dreary up to this point and tell another story, right? Like, you can just reinterpret that as, well, something has gone on in the past, but as of this moment, this could, there's no there's no reason written into the physical universe why that couldn't suddenly become the most meaningful conversation you have all week, right? Hmm. And that notion is, I think, part of the subtlety of where I'm going to go with this idea of relationships tonight. I think something is captured in that. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that makes a lot more sense now. I, I see your approach to this. What what I'm kind of interested in for the time being, before we get into the sort of downstream decisions about, you know, once you've acknowledged that you're following certain patterns or that things are not going in a desirable way, then what do you do and how do you do it? I just want to back up just a bit and, and look at this idea of, you, you mentioned habits where following these patterns is, is habits. Do you think this is a situation where whereby everything in our environment over the, the years we've been growing up has, has almost, it, it's, it's formed the input, the training set to our, to our brains. And so our neural connections are entirely formed as a result of these observations. And so because everyone around us and everything around us follows the patterns, we're almost unable to think of anything different, right? Like our, our physical neural architecture might not actually support other patterns inherently, but you'd have to actively grow more neurons that would interconnect in different ways to allow yourself to experience or come up with those other patterns and then obviously the people around you might not necessarily be uh, immediately receptive to them do you think that that's a potential concern do you think that that's what's happening and how much do you think this is just sort of given some starting conditions in the environment the brains are being patterned in a certain way as response you know so how much of it is sort of the training data and how much of it is it's actually nature right so it's how much is nature and how much is nurture here uh is is some of it actually built and rooted in the fact that we have, you know, the kind of bodies we do and the kind of vocal tracts that we do and the kind of brains that we do, right? So even, you know, in in an, in another world, if you started humanity afresh with the same DNA, they would develop the same kind of social patterns, right? And and, and how do you think yeah. that trade off trades off, or do you think it's some kind of hybrid of the two? And then you also mentioned a an underlying base reality of what is happening in in the moment and then there's on top of that layered these stories that everyone's telling themselves and this almost touches on the idea of the map versus the territory where you know there is what is going on in a very high resolution and then there's our internal models our internal representations of what's going on uh where we try and simplify things so that we can understand them better and so that we can sort of run simulations in our head as to what we should say next and what would achieve the desired result in the social interaction. And I wonder if you think that 
telling ourselves stories as an inherently narrative thing do you do you think that differs significantly from the kinds of mental models we have for other things like maybe our intuition of physics you know like when i'm throwing a basketball into a hoop is that mental model that i have of reality fundamentally different to the mental model of telling myself that i'm the better person in a social interaction and the other person is trying to bring me down mm. Okay, so there's a lot of things there that are worth um, jumping into. So you asked about how this idea of the, the, hab- the habits that you tend to enact when you are with certain people, right? And how that might be a function of your genes and your environment and the state of your neurons at that given time, all right, your hormone levels, right? And also the sort of ingrained patterns through repeated exposure to a similar person, right? And I think this is going to add another piece to the story, this subtle story that I want to try and weave together for myself here. So this is what I would say. It's true that I think we tend to live out very much repeating archetypal interactions with certain people, right? I mean, it's a truism at this point to say that our interactions, me and you, are very different from... The, the typical interaction I have with my brother, not my brother, my mother. <laughs> my yeah. brother's actually strikingly similar. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that differs from the interactions with someone else, right? And so in some sense, we've built up this habit, right? That we Similar topics come, tend to come up in the way we treat each other, right? We have certain habits or, or you could call them um, sort of dogma around how we deal with argument or disagreement or differing intuitions, right? And in other situations, uh, those differ, and that changes our behavior accordingly. But let's take the example of a relationship that's really not going well, right? This is um, a friend or even just an acquaintance who you're arguing with or you tend to bicker with or it's a partner you don't communicate with well, right? The point is that Yes, it's true in some sense that those habitual grooves that are well-worn do tend to act kind of like ski tracks, right? When they're really well-worn, it's really difficult to get out of that track. You know, the the gravity of that um, ski slope is going to tend to carry you down that path. I mean, just like any other habit, right? Exactly. You've you've literally got uh, more reinforced neural connections physically in your brain. Exactly. But, and and this is the key but here, is in the same way, right, that sometimes, not not often, and it's not without significant difficulty, people break even the most difficult of habits, right? Smoking, severe drug misuse. The day that you stop an unhelpful relationship, right? The day that instead of just bickering, instead of, being petty or making biting remarks. The day that your interactions go from that to wildly positive, before that day happened, you would have no way of knowing that that was about to happen, right? So in the same way that like the um, state of your neurons and the state of your genes and the state of your hormones that determined in some sense the habits that have formed in that conversation, right? And are fairly inscrutable, fairly inscrutable, right? Whatever change it is that makes it such that 
your interactions from that point on are good. If that was, let's just say that was the outcome, right? That suddenly you just, you woke up on one day and you found it within yourself to be good. Whatever it is, whatever that thing that you find is, is also itself inscrutable. And a priori, you wouldn't be able to tell if this was the day, right? So this then becomes one of those, um, a case of those kind of instrumental beliefs, which we've mentioned before, where it's useful to always act as if you are, in some sense, not bound by this genetic history, uh, you know, your your neurological history, your hormonal history, the history of your culture, whatever, right? Because the day that that changes, you would have no way of knowing the morning you woke up then that suddenly you would find it within you to do that. And I think that's another piece of the puzzle here, right? Is because we are in some sense always shrouded in, in the mystery of what the future is going to turn out like, the things which tend to keep us, right, in that, that well-worn ski track that takes, takes you down the mountain, right, is in some sense being reinforced when you repeat the story to yourself of, oh, well, we just don't get along, right? If you stop believing your own story, if you just turned off that voice in your head that repeats that history, right? Or if you started to view that history as outright false, right? You just, you know, it, it's just a memory, right? It, it has, you could choose almost to say, this has no weight for how today will go because, because you do have no, no way of knowing that today wouldn't be any better. And anytime you do tell yourself that you do somehow know that today will be worse, right? would be, again, a function of you repeating some story, some beliefs that you hold about your ability to get on, to have a good relationship, to not make biting comments, etc. Yeah, it's really peculiar to me, now that I'm thinking about it actively, that we have this tendency to preserve continuity in our lives through the use of stories. Now, it makes sense, given that we've used storytelling and narrative structure for many generations through our evolutionary history as a way of, of conveying information through the oral tradition. At least that's my assumption on it. But it seems that that isn't necessarily the only way it could have gone. Right? There, there, there may be other ways in which a biological entity could have evolved to be conscious and to have a sense of self yeah, and yet not tell itself stories about itself. Maybe about other things, but not about itself. Although I feel that you know the being being the center of of our own universes as we each are unto ourselves it's it's almost impossible if you think in stories to not tell yourself stories uh, about the sort of object of most of your attention so so that's the first thing that just it just seems like it it's very viable that there could be other ways and potentially we're not excluded from tapping into those and this comes into the idea of what you're saying about you wouldn't see it coming when you make the transition, almost the, the phase transition, to borrow the physics term, into a a different pattern where you break out of a mold or break out of the sort of social recipes that we mostly tend to follow. And I think that ties into sort of a Sam Harris style free will argument, uh, which we don't have time to go into now, but everyone's 
very much encouraged to 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 look that up. It'll probably come up with the first Google search. Read the book, yeah, <laughs> or read the book, yeah. Uh, so, I, I think I think that does tie into that idea where you know if you look at things from a physical level, it's almost inherently deterministic. But yeah. when it comes to making those transitions, and there is a break, there is definitely more work involved, right? There's active work that has to be done to rewire your brain as opposed to just following existing connect, uh, connections right and it's this idea of the brain makes things that you do frequently very efficient yes just from an electrical standpoint if if nothing else uh and to override that is, is a lot of hard work you've first got to actively create resistance on those channels and this is hard because the very thing that's got to do this overriding is the thing being overridden but in some sense the the part of you that this day of all other days decides to actually go through with the hard work is again like inscrutable you know like yeah you can tell yourself a story as to why you you can either tell yourself a story of why you can't put in this hard work or why it's too difficult and you can believe that story or you can dump that story but either way you know as you say it it does fall into this weird um, yeah, almost regress like of, recursion. Yeah, yeah right. It's completely... uh, of, of of what level of meta you're thinking at, mm. and it's um, yeah, it's a it's a mind bending one, and it's something that's worth grappling with. But one thing I'm fairly confident we'd both agree on, if I've been listening to your line of reasoning correctly, is that it would take active work once the trigger has been fired. So that that trigger is inscrutable to break the pattern potentially, but once that has been fired there was active work involved in breaking any kind of habit. And these sort of conditioned social patterns are very much so. I mean, am I am I expressing that in a way that makes sense? Yeah. So, yes, in a way, right? I mean, you know, if someone said, uh, I'm going to, you know, get this huge project done, but, you know, there's no free will. So, like, it'll, if, it, if it's going to get done at all, um, well, it, it'll happen of its own accord, right? That's that's not how things are going to happen in some sense, right? You know, you, things don't get done by you just sitting somewhere. But when you say the word, you know, active, I think it's it's one of these cases where we need to tease out se- separate meanings of the word, right? So there's active in the sense of um, it's hard work or it's something which um, requires you like that's active, right? Or this active in the sense of it's not just the passive response you tend to have something, right? Um, or there's active in the sense of like there's a there's a physical continued feeling of strain, right? Um, that's how I would separate out the word active there, and I think it's useful because each of those three things has a separate component, and without delineating that, we risk um, confusing each other almost and disagreeing over subsets of the meaning there. So that's the first thing I'd say. Um, so I think the, the sense, you're right in the sense that, you know, rewiring your brain is, is, is in some sense an active process, right? As in, if you just passively let the conversations play out in the way they've tended to, well, then your brain will stay passively in the way that it is currently wired, right? So that, on that sense, we agree. But then again, right, when we say actively rewire, it's not like we are actually doing anything. We're not doing the rewiring. It's happening. 
And it's happening as a function of the change in your interactions, which, again, to go back to that subtle point, you have no real reason to know exactly what it was that brought about that change. What what made you jump your skis out of this track that you've been descending down habitually and suddenly find yourself in like a new parallel or orthogonal direction, rather? Let's just go back quickly because you made several points um, and I only touched on the the one about the, the habit thing. You mentioned the idea of um, the map versus territory distinction and how this might yep. play in. Um, and then the other thing you mentioned was where well, you maybe asked how stories and how mental models are either the same or different. And I think those are both worth jumping into. Um, so... Do you want to quickly uh, give the background of what this map versus territory distinction is and introduce maybe how you're thinking of it in terms of what we're discussing here and then we can dig into that? Yeah, so I think that would be helpful. It it comes primarily from so the works of the more classical rationalists almost uh, and, and then <laughs> the continuation of that uh, with the with the the newer rationalists so uh, you know you've got someone like a uh, Carl Sagan who would be talking about you know your your view of of reality and your models of the world and that idea is extended quite considerably by someone like uh Elias Yudkowsky who we will mention every episode so there'll probably just be a link in the in the show notes every episode by default <laughs> as to who Eliezer is and and what he does but yeah he he, he writes some interesting work on this topic definitely worth looking into he expresses this idea and and i'm not sure if it's his terminology but it's the idea of a map versus a territory right so you've got the territory which is the actual physical land itself uh, and that has all sorts of, of weird quirks right like that idea of the, the coastline is actually infinite if you measure it at a at a small enough resolution because you can just keep zooming in and the sort of uh little the nuances in the pattern actually add up to to infinity i mean there's these these weird properties of if you if we don't even know at what level you can stop zooming in but we we don't know the full subatomic properties of everything so you've got to accept the fact that short of building an exact uh subatomic copy of an area in physical space like the city of cape town for instance yeah you the only way you can represent it or reason about it or do anything useful in it is to have some kind of internal representation that approximates it and that's what we would call a model or so a this idea in this of case. in this case a map right and 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 so the analogy is instead of representing this area like the city of cape town with a copy of it which is totally impractical you represent it with you know a 2d cartographical drawing or with some GPS satellite maps or with something that allows you to represent space at some scale and you lose detail a lot of detail if you're talking about subatomic levels but that allows you to reason about things and to plan your journey and to be able to make reasonable comparisons about distances and things like that so it's very practical very useful it's it's instrumental this analogy gets extended into other domains uh, and they can be abstract domains as well uh so the territory being whatever the thing is that we are trying to reason about or discuss or examine and the map being our internal model 
So one might have a sort of internal model about the laws of physics that is based on sort of an intuition of Newton's three laws of motion. And without having to actually do any real calculations, you have a pretty good sense of how things are going to behave in terms of attractive forces, in terms of repulsion, in terms of energy transfer and momentum and things like that. And humans develop this quite quickly. And it's something that's actually hard to encode into machines. Um, I mean, like a child can understand how objects are going to collide much better than your average naive simulation of the physics can uh, and make predictions ahead of time. Uh, yeah. and a great example of this is, you know, throwing throwing a ball on an arc and landing it like in a bucket or in a hoop or something like that. It's like, like the, the, the calculations there are much more significant than doing the action would lead you to believe. And that's because we have a very strong internal model of uh, the physics we encounter on Earth at a human scale because it's very beneficial to our survival. So we've probably also optimized our brains for that. Uh, but without going on too many further tangents there, that's the idea and the, the fundamental intuition behind the map versus the territory. So when we, when we say map, we're talking about a, a mental model. And when we say the territory, we're talking about the concept or the physical thing that we're trying to discuss or talk about or leverage to our advantage. Uh, and so bringing this back into the conversation we were having before, you've got the reality of this underlying social interaction, the actual communications that are going back and forth, be them uh, verbal or textual or physical, uh, as dictated by body language and uh, internality. And then you have the stories that people are telling themselves about those social interactions, which potentially serve as the model or the map. And if that analogy holds, then I think there's a lot we can discuss about how good are those stories as models, as representations. And as we know from other domains, you can decide which models to use. And with a little bit of effort, you can create better models that serve you more effectively. And you can actually put your models to the test and see which ones are useful and keep those. And this would tie into the idea of, okay, well, if there are these patterns that come about because of the stories we're telling ourselves, and these stories are just like other mental models, then what stories do we want to choose to tell ourselves to achieve better outcomes in reality. I, I, I think that captures my thoughts about it um, and sets us up to go forward. I, I don't know how, how, how you feel and, and if I've done it justice. Yeah. So I think if I had to, you know, pin down um, some of the main things you said there, right? You've got this, the map versus territory distinction captures several key ideas, but one of them is this almost inex inescapable trade-off between the accuracy of the model right the granularity that you represent what's going on versus the usefulness of that model right that i think that trade-off is is really interesting you know yeah it's like do you need to know um the momentum and direction of every particle to uh throw a ball well no you don't right knowing that would be a more accurate model, but it would be a less useful one, just to give a bit of intuition there. Mm. So I guess when you talk about, and I may actually go on a completely different tangent at some point in this. So uh, the name what, of the game. it is the name of the game, which is why I don't feel too bad for it. But you know, you've been forewarned. I think to the extent that stories are mental models, 
the way that I view mental models is a set of things which they first of all have to actually map reality, right? So, I mean, they need to tell you something that is, um, to a reasonable approximation, true, even if at the most granular level, granular level, they aren't. So, you know, it's, um, you get certain mental models which are like aids in thinking, right? And they often used prospectively. Whereas the reason I use the word story is in fact to almost invoke that sense of fiction, right? But when I call something a story, I'm, I'm trying to conjure up the, the idea that in some sense, it is a fiction that you are believing. And so now if I had to dig into where exactly that comes from, like what makes the mental models, which I'm acknowledging are not perfect, but yet are useful, I think that might just be it, is the stories tend to be unhelpful unless you are consciously choosing more helpful ones. But our default stories, to go back all the way to the beginning of this, you know, and to look at how much emotional strife there is amongst human beings in their interactions, our default stories are clearly not amazing, right? They are based on millennia of tribal competition, of striving to climb up the dominance hierarchy of a small band of hunter-gatherers. They are optimized to help you signal your social allegiance to powerful primates and to signal disgust about primates to whom you feel that the group has disgust. And, and as a result of the survival uh, aspect of it, they've, they've been optimized to be highly sensitive to negative trains of thought and negative stories. Right, like yeah. those things seem to be much more poignant than the positive ones. Yeah. The first time that um, someone puts a chink in this armor of sort of what I feel like being human or being conscious is, right? My, my view of it has always been that, you know, yes, there is some underlying reality and that we develop these maps of it, right? These models of it. And you would say that the models are in some sense like isomorphic to the to the to the reality right they they have something so what what exactly do you mean by that what so what i mean is that like let's say that reality whatever reality is right at a base level our maps actually re represent something about that right they actually carry information about that reality right like i think that most people hold that view and i certainly do but the first time that anyone gave me any real reason or any real good argument to doubt it was um, a guy named Don Hoffman on the After On podcast. And I just, I love this argument so much that I think it bears repeating. So as I was saying, right, like, I think the general view that everyone holds is that whatever our consciousness is, our experience of reality as some abstraction of that reality, it still carries about it something about the underlying thing, right? So we don't directly experience particles and quantum fields, but, you know, like our sense of tactile um, use or whatever, uh, or our sense of space still tells us something about those particles as they are. You know? And what this guy Don Hoffman argued is that no, 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 um reality whatever it is our experience of it is not even a map of it now this sounds so outrageous and objectionable this takes some serious explaining 
But what he argues, right, is that our consciousness is more like a um, our experience of a computer. And I don't mean this in terms of the simulation hypothesis, just to quickly close that door and leave it shut for this episode, let's just say. And under lock and key. What he argues, right, is think about a desktop, right, the desktop computer you use. And you can see how um, having a little image of a recycle bin and having this window where you can drag and drop folders, right, is a useful abstraction. But this is a great example of an abstraction of... So the computer is, in this, in this analogy, is baseline reality, right? But the desktop actually reflects nothing about that um, reality, right? Because the reality is made of ones and zeros, right? So the map to those ones and zeros is artificially constructed. It's useful, but it actually doesn't map that reality, right? It, it, so you would it say actually... it's not isomorphic to the reality. In that exactly. Case, right? It, right? It's, it's a metaphor that doesn't actually represent the underlying system at all. Exactly. You actually, but it's useful. It's useful. So you choose, you, you're, you're finding a useful representation but you actually don't know anything about the actual state of the ones and zeros, or even that they are ones and zeros, right? So if you viewed our consciousness as, instead of being this like map that has some physical contact with, with reality, in, in his view of it, the, the map has absolutely no bearing on what the actual state of things is. And that was just so damaging and destabilizing to what i would have um said is almost self-evident that it was just it's it's really an argument that's worth hearing and i would say check out the original podcast because hearing him say it is even more worthwhile yeah they really take the time to to dig into it and, and look at the examples and uh yeah so that that metaphor that he has of the desktop interface in modern computing systems is a fantastic one like explaining this concept to people before the invention of personal computing would have been very difficult because you yeah. don't have that metaphor. Uh, it's a good one, but uh, just to clarify, his his basis for this argument is actually rooted in the fact that he's run simulations yeah. at his lab that suggest to us that an inaccurate but highly useful representation, and by useful I mean benefiting your survival, would be evolutionarily selected for over an accurate one. And so he says that every time you have these simulated entities that use an abstraction that isn't actually a good representation, they use a metaphor, that always wins out over the accurate ones, right? And so his idea being that because humans have evolved, the same selective pressures are on us. And so, you know, surviving a lion attack, you know, we have this 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 metaphor of what a lion is in our consciousness in our representation of reality but that doesn't actually necessarily map to the underlying reality in an accurate way but it maps in a very useful way and as a result those humans have survived and those are our ancestors and we've descended from them to have this view of reality yeah so i think as you say there's there's a more formal argument backing it but the intuition i think is really carried well by this computer analogy and so so how how does this relate into now these stories that people are are telling themselves so do you see these stories as inherently 
fictitious right these are these are myths that we are using in the same way the ancient greeks used to use they used to anthropomorphize the elements as characters that had emotions and stories and used to interact as a way of understanding what was happening in the physical world around them right do you do you think that these stories that we tell ourselves during social interactions are not like mental models they're actually much more like like metaphors that that we use they're inherently fictitious and inaccurate but they've been useful for our evolutionary survival you know i think they're not even like metaphors right i think they're almost like mirages they they seem so real and if all you had to investigate it was your vision you would swear that they are true but dig into it walk towards it and it turns out to be false yeah so the idea was just you know you've broke broken these patterns now but it's like how do we know given the fact that it's such a the object that is viewing itself aspect to the the brain and how we approach our own thoughts and thinking about our own thoughts like how do we know we're not fooling ourselves you can you can have a conversation with someone you can think you've broken the pattern you can think you're both on the same page you understand each other and then a week later suddenly emotions are bubbling up from seemingly nowhere and the issues all come loose and the, the pattern ends up you know emerging in, in the very end it's almost like it wanted to emerge and it just got suppressed yeah like how do we know we're not fooling ourselves and is it possible to actually truly break these patterns is it possible to truly break them yes how would we know that we're not fooling ourselves you wouldn't and i think you can see that from applying the same argument that we made earlier of the day that you break that terrible addiction or the day that you do not tend to have the kind of interaction with someone you care about but that you're like arguing with it with let's say you wouldn't know beforehand you also wouldn't know beforehand if the pattern were to some suddenly re-emerge right so we are always in some sense vulnerable to this uncertainty and that is why i think learning to be comfortable with uncertainty is really the task of a lifetime in some sense and it's definitely something that i want to get better at myself because we you know i mean okay do i want to risk bringing in more <laughs> tangents here but you know there are some really stunning uh theories of the brain i'm thinking particularly of carl friston's work uh computational neuroscience work on uh entropy minimization ideas right where you're trying to minimize predictive uncertainty right we love as as humans there are some arguments that literally what our brains do is minimize uncertainty and so it's not surprising that that's really uncomfortable to us so that's why that idea is a bit uncomfortable as well right people don't like to be told well you could always be fooling yourself and yet i think that's kind of true right we are vulnerable to just the next event that that will appear and that might throw us out of this comfortable groove or throw us back into another one we thought we were far past when it comes to breaking these patterns and not fooling ourselves mm. i think the closest thing that i've seen that approximates what we are talking about here is not actually to really break the pattern and you know leave it behind entirely because even if you can do that well which we're not entirely convinced you can there still remains the problem of in the social interaction there's at least another party or maybe multiple other parties and even if you've managed to break the pattern well that you know, doesn't guarantee that they will 
So this idea is instead of breaking the pattern, you would just shift to another pattern that ha holds more value in the moment, right? And this this almost ties back into that Hoffman idea of the um, mental views of reality that had higher utility were more effective than the ones that had higher accuracy, right? So it's like these stories we tell ourselves have very low accuracy because they don't map well to reality, but they might have very high utility. And so if we just treat them as as instruments, as tools, we can just hot swap one out for another. Mm. And 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 the sort of terminology I've seen used for this in a you know, social rapport context, I believe a frame shift or frame shifting, right? So there's like the really successful YouTube channel called Charisma on Command, and they, they will sort of dissect these kind of ideas about social interactions. And, and a lot of it is, is kind of just, you know, how to, how to, you know, be more charming on dates and how to be more engaging <laughs> in public speaking and all very useful uh, skills. But I think this was one of the ones that really sort of connected to some higher level instrumental rationality tools here, which is, you know, this idea of a frame shift. And the example I believe he gave uh, was from a, a scene in Game of Thrones. And there's, I think, no spoilers here. So uh, I wouldn't worry if you've not seen any Game of Thrones or if you but the idea is that uh, Tyrion Lannister is one of the socially uh, adept characters. It finds himself in the woods with uh, one compatriot and they get surrounded by almost you know, wild bandits who are well armed and much stronger than him. And they approach them and they are going to try and rob them or kill them or whatever they might do. And there's a, a frame that is set of you know, these are the aggressors and they have the power and they are coming to take it from you and you need to be polite to them and make yourself harmless and then they will hopefully show mercy. And Tyrion, you know, adapts uh, and takes on this frame and at some point he realizes that he's going to die if he does that. And so he has the foresight to frame shift and he instead frame shifts it to these guys aren't, you know, the, the dominant force coming to take advantage and he must, you know, make himself vulnerable and they'll hopefully show mercy. Instead, he shifts the frame to these guys have got really lucky. Like they've just won the lottery because he's Tyrion Lannister and he's part of the Lannister family. And the Lannister family is known for being wealthy and moreover, always paying their debts, right? Which means these guys have essentially lucked out into finding this guy in the forest and now they can, you know, provide a an escort to him through these dangerous woods uh, in exchange for for payment, right? So, I mean, th these guys have lucked out completely. And by executing that frame shift, he is able to save himself in that situation and, and work his way out of it uh, and probably save his life. And so I thought that idea was really clever because it kind of just went, okay, cool. Well, you can't <laughs> gamble on these characters, these bandits in the wood that you've just met knowing how to break out of a frame and you know take on a new one that no one in humankind's ever seen before but you can rely on them just you know slipping into a new one and once you've applied the frame shift it's unlikely that they will be able to shift out of the frame again if, if they are not practiced in such things um, and i really like this idea and another way that i've in my personal life uh, try to use this instrument is by almost acting in a role, right? If you're telling yourself stories anyway and you are imitating the people around you anyway, why not just make that character very concrete in your head and, and play the role? So like one of the great examples that gets used a lot of the time is like walk into a bar like you are James Bond. Like just be <laughs> the character. Like you don't have to do the accent and you don't have to like say all the lines and you don't have to, you know, shoot the whole place up at the end. <laughs> but walk in the way James Bond would walk in 
and hold yourself and carry yourself the way James Bond would carry himself. Right? And, and it's much easier to play a character than it is to get out of your own head and not, you know, think about your insecurities and to worry about people rejecting you or anything like that. And, and I think this technique is incredibly useful. It's incredibly useful in negotiation as well, or like in a job interview or something like that, where you can go in acting as the kind of person that would get that job or would come out better in that negotiation. And you just make that a very concrete character. Like James Bond's a great example because we all know how James Bond behaves. And I think this is a good approximation of what we are ideally going for with breaking these patterns. No, I mean, that's a great example, right? I mean, what I almost wanted to shout there is back to the Tyrion example, right? Which of those is true, right? Before you mentioned the frame shift, if you had lined up that scenario for most people and said, well, is it true that, you know, he's a dwarf and he's vulnerable right now and he's, um, these are the aggressors, right? And people, I think, would generally nod along and say, yeah, that uh, he's vulnerable to these aggressors. But then again, as soon as you apply the frame shift, suddenly it is true that these are very lucky bandits to have found and stumbled upon a Lannister. And so looking back, you're confronted with two views of reality, which would both have been true in the absence of the other. And one happens to be more useful, right? And this does tie in very closely with what we've been speaking about with stories, because there was one thing you said there, which I wanted to desperately clarify because it's important. And you were saying how um, maybe we can't stop telling ourselves these stories, right? And maybe it's because these stories are really useful, even if they aren't true. But again, what I would hit on is that when you say useful, right, you and I might understand that to mean useful for evolution's purposes, right? I think we are perpetually surprising ourselves with how little things are adapted for our own well-defined rational purposes Hmm. right and how much things are very well adapted and useful when useful is defined by how many of your genes make it to the next generation because it's true i think a lot of the stories that we're telling ourselves right the the incessant nagging way in which we are self-referential and self-concerned in every interaction is that useful if you are trying to be the most generous and kind person? Well, probably not. But is it useful for your genes, right, to constantly be asking, how do I relate to this person? What do I look like in the eyes? Oh, well, yeah, sure, it probably is, right? And that's why, in some sense, we've converged on those stories. So, again, a- another great example there of why it's useful to um, decompose words into their components and, and separate out um similar sounding ones into very separate distinct concepts so we can tie that all the way back now into where you left off we so we don't know which of Tyrion's stories is true right and in some sense they are both true or they're both false they're, they're both stories and one of the stories is useful and one isn't so now this gets into the thing of should we abandon should we try is it even worth trying to abandon all stories or is it worth trying to tell more useful stories? And I think this is another sticking point in this line of argument that um, I encounter, because I think both practices are useful. So before we get into that, maybe just from your own life, right, and maybe we can tie into our sort of theme tonight of, of stories in, in particular about relationships with people. I mean, 
do you have like any good examples in your life of a way that you've like another trick right the james bond hack that you are using to routinely switch up out of those habits and have more useful fruitful interactions with other human beings two jump to mind immediately uh the first one I'll, i'll get the little controversial potentially one out of the way first um and it's actually an idea that comes from darren brown who's the english sort of scientific mentalist illusionist magician he does those great documentaries where he'll you know get unsuspecting people and surround them with actors that make them believe they're in make them tell themselves some kind of story like you know they've murdered someone but they don't remember it or or something like that and see how they react and and a, a large part of this also ties into his seemingly demonstrably you know viable way that he is able to hypnotize people and make them highly suggestible i think a really great podcast was him on uh, the tim ferris show i believe it was um yep really really great uh where he where he digs into all of this kind of stuff and sort of the science behind it and how he goes about this process so i mean like obviously you know uh the woo receptors are, are firing the woo radar is is, is all lit <laughs> up but um definitely worth looking into from a psychological and scientific uh standpoint but anyway without digressing too far uh you know it's this idea of if you get sort of like accosted by someone on the street you know like someone's coming up to mug you and they go you know give me all your money or like they're expecting you to either like run away or go, oh, please don't hurt me and hand over all your money, right? It's almost similar to that that situation that Tyrion was in. And so his idea was just to absolutely surprise them in, in a way like you, you give them something in return that they could never have possibly anticipated. And in so doing, you, you guarantee a frame shift that will potentially render them useless, right? So the example he uses is like the person comes up and demands that you hand over or, you know, wallet and keys at, at, at gun or knife point. And you respond instantly by going, oh, my father's chronometer isn't above the wall yet, right? And it's, it's this idea of like, what did you, like, there's no possible way that this person is expecting you to say that. And like, by the time they're finished passing what it is that you've said, they're, they're totally caught off guard now, right? Which gives you the opportunity to then step away, shout for help, run, you know, or, or peacefully take out your pepper spray and, and, uh, level the playing field whatever whatever it is you might you might do in that situation right now like obviously you know like don't don't take unnecessary risks and things like that but i really like this idea of you know you can just have almost on cue these examples of things that will totally frame shift there will come a time almost certainly where someone will come up to you to ask for something where their intentions are unknown and so you will have to frame shift out of the situation and a great way I found of doing this is if the person hasn't heard you saying anything up to that point, just start speaking total gibberish in a language that sounds like something very different from a language they speak and, and, and insist on, on, on this and seem very earnest and respectful and genuinely empathetic, but that you are totally unable to communicate efficiently with this person, regardless of what they ask for. You can just totally act confused and upset and genuinely empathetic but not be able to communicate with them whatsoever and i found that's a really incredible tool because in those situations it forms a frame shift and someone whose motives were now unclear a their motives become very clear like if they were coming up to you expecting to intimidate you well now they've totally like lost their confidence 
uh, or if they were coming up to you in genuine desperation, that becomes very clear because you can see from their reaction that they're disappointed and 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 just from that perspective, the frame shift is is quite a powerful thing. Um, so yeah, use with caution and you know use where applicable. But it is an example of a case that works. And another one is a very very simple one, and I think a lot of people are actually familiar with the second one, which is to crack a joke, right? Like sometimes the most serious situation, the most harrowing situation, is best addressed with humor. Right? Humor serves a very fundamental purpose; otherwise, we wouldn't have it in you know our evolutionary history, and humor is an incredible way of of creating a frame shift you know more numerous than i can count is times when there's a almost dire social situation and cracking the right joke in the right way can completely frame shift it into a proactive cooperative discussion and i think most people have experienced this that definitely takes some skill and involves quite a bit of risk whether the joke lands or not yeah of course but it's it's an incredibly good way to frame shift that is almost guaranteed to work if you do it right mm. although a lot of things are guaranteed to work if done right <laughs> i mean right yeah like there we go 99 yeah. percent effective if used properly um <laughs> used properly 60 percent of the time of course yeah right well, that's the, that's the challenge um i mean yeah so throwing that right back at you i don't know what uh what what social hacks for frame shifting you've 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 taken on i think when i broached this topic i wasn't thinking in terms of social hacks right because for me, I think the inspiration for this topic has just been like my own personal thought very much on relationships with people close to me. So I think you've done a nice job of illustrating how like the power of, of story in some sense or the power of narrative structure in the kinds of interactions that people tend to have, right? And, and your own interactions with someone on the street, let's say. But for me, where this came up and, and where my thinking on this was really kicked into overdrive was when thinking about the kind of person that I tend to be around other people, the kinds of relationships and interactions I tend to have. So thinking about whether I'm really truly beholden, right? Am I really destined to live out the same kind of existence that I've tended to do? Or to what extent I am not actually, let's just say, doomed, but in which I'm sort of always potentially on the cusp of the day that you wake up and become a better person. Whatever idea you have to hear or revelation you have to have, to again say something we've said so many times in this conversation, right? There's no reason in principle that that couldn't be the next one or the current one you're having. And the other thing I, I've been thinking about, really, to tie this all in to something I think both of us value quite highly and think about is how honesty can be useful here. So this is that idea of like complete openness and willingness to express a set of desires, right? Or a set of... um notions of what's going on in your head right because part of the story we tell ourselves i find a common story is that it is somehow not socially permissible or at least slightly discouraged to make too much of your own mental processing known it feels presumptuous people see it as overly forward people have issues around trust and credibility 
people find it to be an issue of who gets power in a relationship. So there's like a cost though that we are all paying for this amount of mistrust, particularly with the people we are closest with. And paradoxically, you find this to a upsetting degree, even in the relationships that are most intimate, right? I mean, intimate partners, it's almost a cliche to say that, you know, people will say things like, don't give him or her so much power over you. And so I've been thinking about how a sort of commitment to express what you're thinking, even in the face of um, stigma or of some personal cost, right? That person genuinely uh, finding that a little bit odd. First of all, I think we overestimate the extent to which that is odd. The, the cost we pay for that is actually much higher than the cost of the honesty. And generally, it's actually much less difficult and costly than people tend to believe to just honestly say what you're thinking. Yeah, in most parts of the world. Yeah, of course. Of course, right? I'm, I'm really just going to speak to the very narrow set of social circumstances that I've yeah. found myself in, right? Yeah, just, just, a, just a caveat out there. Exactly. So, so if, you, if you have to lie to keep yourself alive every day, then, then, then you, should you should probably, probably carry on doing that. Exactly, right? But, you know, when, when people in intimate relationships or when friends can't tell their friends that, hey, like, I don't want to watch that movie. Right? People mm. really struggle with that. And it's, right? Yeah, like, where do you want to eat? Exactly. And, and some part of that is just the computational work that you're now thrusting upon someone else, which exactly. is frankly quite rude. But uh, but but there's another part of that. It's like, oh, what would you prefer? I was like, I don't mind, whatever you prefer. Mm. And there is there is some lack of honesty there to, yeah. to a large extent. And I think we pay a cost for not making a habit out of routinely expressing exactly what we want. And it, like to a high degree of accuracy, our current mental state, the current set of beliefs we are riding on, our current understanding of the situation, right? This goes back to your idea of frame shifting, where I think it's quite kind and empathetic to do more than is the societal norm, to try and give someone an understanding of the information that you have right now. It basically, how I view it from an ethical point of view, is trying to go from from a game theory point of view, uh, an asymmetric information game, right? And trying to make it symmetric. And you don't know that it'll be reciprocated. But I do still find, at least with your friends, why would you want to be playing these one-sided asymmetric zero-sum games, right? Again, this is a, 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 there is an element in which you can choose to just try and inform someone of what they need to know to make an informed decision somewhere. And now I realize this sounds like a bit of a tangent from where we've left off, which is about stories and their usefulness. But for me, this is one of them. I think that one of the most pervasive stories that, or set of stories that people tend to tell is the extent to which they are obligated not to share too much of themselves, mm. too much of their life history, too much of their perspective with other human beings. And I think we pay an almost unacceptably high price as a society and as individuals for that unwillingness. And I find myself perpetually trying to both find internal courage to really live up to that because I do find it difficult, admittedly, and to try and encourage other people to do so. So I think that for me is one of the most unhelpful stories. 
Mm. And it is in actively trying to refute it, to demonstrate that you really can be quite honest, quite open, quite vulnerable. And the costs are almost never as bad as people think. And yeah, so it's not it's not so much a life but, hack. But it but does take quite a lot of courage to overcome that sort of activation energy that's required in the first place. You have to be quite assertive. I mean, it, it's an almost aggressive act to 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 frame shift, right? You're like, in, in a conceptual sense, breaking down the social fabric and replacing it with something that you are saying is better. Like, you're not giving anyone else an option, right? When you enforce a frame shift by cracking a joke or by speaking in gibberish to someone <laughs> who's accosting you on the street you are just you are shifting the frame you're not you're not polling them mm. or letting them vote uh or, or, or sort of extending the courtesy right it's not like would you like to join me for this dance where you're giving them all these social avenues to respond you you are just shifting the frame right it's almost yeah. like a, a tangible physical transition um and that requires quite a lot of assertion and quite a lot of confidence i mean sometimes it requires pelvic thrusting through a window <laughs> as uh, as as we've as we've come to realize um, you know doing what it takes for the frame shift i think i think <laughs> next time yeah next time you're caught uh, in a compromised situation you can uh, you can always just claim the frame shift just just link them to this episode and uh an hour and a half later the person will understand will. why why you why you used your your glutes to to smash through their their window but i mean so isn't that just it right i mean yes it's true i think that there is an ethical burden on anyone and all who do choose to try and change things to really ask you know what are the reasons for doing this right but let's just assume Mm -hmm. you get that right i think the more interesting question is also to ask what are the barriers to doing this in the first place right and i think one of them that's interesting and pervasive is the sense in which there's a fairly well-described stigma to talking about yourself too much right and so at least what i've seen is for like very complicated arguments arguments where you might have to spend a long time explaining the inferential steps right the logical building blocks of your argument at some point, it just feels like you're hogging the mic, right? Similarly, when we talk about ourselves and the situations we're in, at some point, there's like this universal human ethic that says that, sure, you can talk about your problems, but hey, you know, give us the executive summary. And mm. that gets enforced by sort of tribal dynamics. And I think might be a candidate for something we could identify as possibly evolutionarily useful but maybe outmoded now in a lot of the situations we find ourselves in yeah absolutely and and i think we can identify a lot of things like that i mean my real takeaways from this conversation have been that these stories that we tell ourselves are not like mental models in that they are generally speaking not accurate but they are useful and that that utility was grounded in the scoring function of reproductive success until very recently in history. And now we get the opportunity to put in the hard work to override those and shift it to align with our own personal utility functions, right? To to align with our values and our desires and to really select these stories in a way that the utility works in favor of us and not just of our genes. And the first step is probably to just notice these stories 
And the second step is to start looking at the consequences of them. And then following on from those two, how do you shift from one story to another where another might serve you better in whatever your goals may be? Yeah, I mean, that was a really, really great summary. That was... Yeah, that was courtesy idea. of GPT-2. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bit of a Tangent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter through the handle at podtangent. For more information about us, our backgrounds, and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. That's podtangent.com. The best ways to support us are to share one of our episodes with someone who may enjoy them and to give us a rating or review on iTunes. That way, Apple knows that we're actually worth listening to and all the platforms that pull content from them will too. We both love having these discussions and relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. So your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.